Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1941, Anne White was a senior at Wellesley College when she received a letter. It was an invitation to meet with a professor in the astronomy department, but it wasn't about grades or a class that she had to make up. Instead, the professor asked Anne two simple questions. Did she like crossword puzzles? And was she engaged to be married? Anne White was being recruited as a codebreaker, and there were legions of other women that would work alongside her as cryptographers during World War II. The importance of codebreaking in that war is pretty well known, but the fact that so many of the people who were actually breaking the codes were women, that's not. Liza Mundy is the author of Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers of World War II. Liza, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So um, why did these secret letters that I was just talking about, why did they start being sent out? And who, like, how did the military initially know who to send the letters to? That's a great question. So the reason that the letters started going out boils down to basically the surprise attack at Pearl Harbor. Okay. Uh, in, in December of 1941, uh, Our Pacific fleet was attacked by the Japanese, and many thousands of American men died in an attack that we had no idea that it was coming. So Pearl Harbor simultaneously uh, thrust us into World War II. Uh, Suddenly, we were fighting pretty much in all corners of the globe. And at the same time, it exposed our incredible deficit of intelligence gathering. And it's it's so hard to kind of cast our minds back to that time. We have 17 intelligence agencies right. in Washington now, but we had nothing huh. back then. And so the fact that it was a surprise uh, caused a lot of uh, finger pointing mm-hmm. in the U.S. Navy and, and the recognition that we had to ramp up our intelligence gathering instantly and specifically our code breaking. So the U.S. Navy reached out to the Seven Sisters Colleges and some other women's colleges. Let me just stop you right there. Mm -hmm. Why reach out to women's colleges? Why not reach out to... Harvard or right. or you know Rice University or what like why women's colleges? Well, that's what the Navy had been in the in the tradition of doing before the war. It would reach out for its intelligence officers to Harvard and mm-hmm. MIT and mm-hmm. Yale, like to turn to the most elite schools. But all of a sudden, all those men were gone. All those men were unavailable huh. uh, for intelligence gathering or learning how to become codebreakers. They were shipping out to mm. Europe, there to the Atlantic, to the Pacific. They just weren't there. Mm. So when I was doing my research for this book, I actually found a memo in the National Archives in which someone in the Navy, an official, uh, typed up new source women's colleges. Hmm. So if they couldn't get the Ivy League, they were going to turn to the female equivalent. Hmm. So after the women were recruited, and you know, a lot of people were recruited in college, so they're not done with college yet. They get this kind of secret letter in the mail. They go, they visited often a professor at the college who was kind of the clearinghouse for right. these women who'd gotten these secret letters. And they were taking these also secret courses in uh, crypt analysis. They were not supposed to tell anybody what they were doing. How did they... How can you have a secret life where you're taking classes and nobody knows what the class is about and what work you're doing for? How can you possibly keep that secret? 
Right. So they were taking classes at night in locked classrooms. At Wellesley, it was taught, the class was taught in the astronomy observatory, which is kind of set off from the main campus. And the thinking was that if there were lights on at night in the observatory, nobody would really question why. Hmm. At Goucher College, they were taking classes, the young women, at a, in a locked classroom at the top of Goucher Hall, hmm. uh, again at night. So you can't have the enemy know that you're working their code system or that you've broken their code system because the enemy then will change the code system. Mm -hmm. But ironically enough, it turned out to be easier for women to keep the secret. When they came to Washington, they were told that if anybody asked them what they were doing in these top secret compounds where they were working, that they should say that they were secretaries Mm -hmm. and that they sharpened pencils and filled wastebaskets. And because they were women, people believed that Mm -hmm. the work they were doing couldn't possibly be interesting or important. Mm. Um, and, And how hard, you know, you talk about these classes that are really secret. How hard was what they were trying to learn and what they were trying to do? It was really hard. I mean, when I was doing my research, I read I read a lot of the training materials, which still exist in the National Archives. Mm-hmm. And I could understand the principles of what they did. And, and, you know, certain kind of elementary steps, like one of the first things you learn to do is take what's called a frequency count. And you understand that the alphabet has certain mathematical properties. So in the English language, there are certain letters that appear more often than other letters like S and T and E. Mm-hmm. There are certain letters that appear together a lot, mm-hmm. S and T or mm-hmm. EST or ION. Right. And they learn how to sort of study the behavior, the mathematical behavior of language. So if those letters get scrambled and all of a sudden they're seeing a cipher in which Z appears frequently, then they might think, well, maybe Z is E. And so maybe it's been substituted for a common letter. So they learned how to do that. And, and that, that doesn't sound that hard, but it very, very quickly gets quite difficult. And there were so many different code systems being used. Uh, World War II was a global war being fought in every corner of the globe. Right. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have emails. Telephones weren't used that much. So all of the enemy, all of the commanders were were communicating with their troops via radio. And all that was being encrypted by different systems. Some of them were numerical. So words would be rendered as number groups Mm -hmm. and then new numbers would be added. The women had to learn how to do the math to strip out that encryption. Mm. Uh, But some of them were code systems in which letters would be scrambled and they had to learn how to basically sort of unscramble them. So it was fantastically complicated is all I can say. Mm -hmm. So I assume that they were mostly working on German and Japanese codes, that those were the most important. Was there one that was far harder? I mean, I would just wonder to what lengths the Germans and the Japanese went to to encode things. And if one got broken way before the other or... Yeah. Well, there was one that got broken before the war by a woman, a graduate of the University of Buffalo, Genevieve Grochen. She broke this incredibly important code that was being used by Japanese diplomats who were stationed in Europe. They were communicating back with Tokyo. So ironically enough, this was the best, our best intelligence coming out of Europe because they were hanging out with Hitler and Mussolini Mm -hmm. and other Axis leaders. So one of the incredibly important pieces of intelligence we got from that code system. The Japanese diplomats were invited to tour the coast of France, and they reported back in detail on where the coast of France was well fortified and where it wasn't. So when we were planning the D-Day landings, we knew that Normandy would be a better place to land than other parts of the coast. So that's Mm. the kind of uh, intelligence we were getting Mm -hmm. for our own strategic planning. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Liza Mundy, the author of Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers of World War II. I just wonder if you kind of take a step back and you think, you know, of 
being a military leader or being a government leader in the early 1940s, and you have this incredibly important job, cryptography. Now, I, I know, as you said, you know, men are off fighting, and so there's not a lot of men around who can help. But, you know, women don't run anything, right? They don't run the government. They don't run the military. They don't, they don't you know, run almost anything in the U.S. at the time. Why trust women? Why believe that women could take on a job that is clearly so crucial? Why not keep back just some of the men who could have gone to the front? Well, necessity is the mother of inclusion, right? I mean, it, to a certain extent, we didn't have a choice. But I would say at the beginning of this effort, uh, there was some skepticism about whether women could do the work and right. whether women could keep a secret. So at first, they brought in women, but they did have male officers who were in charge. Uh, but as the women proved that they could do the work, and, and you had literally, you had 22-year-old women who were breaking Japanese military code systems and compiling intelligence report every day mm -hmm. for the U.S. Pentagon, as the women proved that they could do the work. They brought in more and more women and shipped the men out to sea. And often the men were supplementing their efforts in the theater of battle. So the men were sort of doing it in the field. The women were doing it domestically in Washington. And ultimately, there were 11,000 women or more uh, doing the work largely in the Washington, D.C. area. Hmm. But the, the women did have to prove that they could do the work. Mm -hmm. and, and the women who joined the Navy, they would become lieutenants. They would become naval officers. Hmm. They would be trained to shoot pistols huh. because at the Naval Code-Breaking Compound, there was a pistol on every desk in case anybody broke into the compound. Wow. So the women were taught to shoot. Mm -hmm. I read memos, you know, where male officers were discussing, like, God, can we teach these women how mm -hmm. to shoot? You know, they didn't have any clear regulations. So they decided, well, we got a pistol range. So yeah, let's teach them how to shoot. So they were sort of making it up as they went along and as the women were proving what they could do. Was the Pentagon and maybe government officials, were they quickly convinced that, like, yes, women are up to this task, even though we may have had some questions beforehand about whether they were or not? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the women uh, who was breaking Japanese army codes that told the location of Japanese troops, this was called order of battle. It was really important intelligence for the U.S. military. She said, you know, we, we broke those codes and we wrote up an intelligence report every day and the, and the Pentagon would send officers basically breathing behind our neck, uh, telling us what they needed and, and telling us to hurry up. Mm -hmm. So the military obviously had complete faith in the intelligence because we were sinking. It's impossible to overstate how many ships we were sinking, how many Japanese ships and German U-boats we were sinking as a result of these intelligence reports that huh. the women were drawing up hmm. and the breaking of messages that foretold where Japanese supply ships and Japanese naval ships hmm. would be. That hmm. intelligence would go to an American submarine commander who would be waiting when the ship appeared on the horizon. It was always in the right place at the right time. And we just sunk thousands and thousands of ships. You say that some women broke codes that revealed that ships or uh, particular areas that were occupied by people that they loved, that they knew that those places or those ships had been captured by the enemy or the ship had been sunk by the enemy. I mean, that just seems traumatizing to figure that something like that out. Absolutely. Uh, one of the women in my book was, uh, she rose to become a lieutenant. She was what they called a watch officer. She was heading the shift okay. at the Naval Code Breaking Compound when they broke a message saying that her own brother's ship out in the Pacific was being targeted by a kamikaze. Of course, the kamikaze raids toward the end of the war were terrible. And she assumed that her brother was dead. She later told her son that the only thing she could keep doing was her work. Uh, it did eventually emerge that her brother was one of the few that had survived. But that just shows how 
how stressful the work was. There were other women who were able to keep tabs on their brotherships and report back to their parents that, you know, that so far their brothers were okay. Huh. Uh, and, but they couldn't tell their parents how they knew that. So how long did the code breakers work? Did they work all the way up until the end of the war in 45? And then what happened to them, you know, the day after D-Day and VJ Day? Like what happened? Yeah, the women worked, you know, they worked uh, 24 hours a day. They worked uh, eight hour shifts uh, all day long. They worked absolutely until the end of the war. One of my most moving chapters in terms of reporting it and writing was the group of women who were breaking and reading the German U-boat codes. And they experienced the D-Day landing. They were they were on the midnight shift on, on June 6th, uh, 1944. They knew that the landing was going to happen, but they didn't know what day it would happen. Uh, they thought it wouldn't happen on the 6th because we had a full moon. But I read um, logs showing that at one thirty in the morning, which would have been, you know, later on in Europe, right. they started receiving German messages in which the Germans were describing with shock and awe uh, the Allied ships that were appearing on the horizon. So mm-hmm. the women experienced the D-Day landing from the point of view of the Germans who yeah. were chattering up and down the French coast about what was happening. So that was incredibly moving. And also the women experienced the Japanese surrender mm-hmm. in the code-breaking compound. It was actually a woman who uh, was sitting at the uh, receiving machine. Uh, she, it, The Japanese surrender message came out a sort of a, a lesser Japanese cipher system. And there was a young woman who had mastered that system and, and knew it better than anybody. And they knew that the surrender message was coming, but again, they didn't know when. And she was sitting there and received it. So she was the first person hmm. to know that uh, that Japan was it's surrendering. Yeah. And and of course, there was enormous celebration in, in Washington. The women all described that. They thought that, they, that we would roll up the code-breaking operations after World War II, you know, that we wouldn't need to do them anymore. Right. But very quickly, uh, the wartime code breaking turned into Cold War code breaking. And we were reading the codes of the Soviets and the East Germans and the Cubans and the Chinese. And there were a number of women who stayed on with what became the NSA, the National Security Agency. Uh, And there were a number of women who were leading Cold War code breaking. There was a woman named Juanita Moody who was in charge of our Cuban code breaking, which was considered a little bit of a backwater until the Cuban Missile Crisis Mm -hmm. happened. And she was leading the code breaking for that. Uh, so most of the women did have to leave. They returned to sort of their normally scheduled lives. They got married. Uh, they had babies. They received no credit for what they did. They were told never to talk about it. My central character, Dot, uh, had never talked about it till I interviewed her. Um, her younger brothers both survived the war. They both had jobs after the war that entailed top secret security clearances. They would get together and brag about their clearances, and Dot could never tell them that she had had a top secret security <laughs> clearance also. So that's the sort of thing they had to put up with. Just talk a little bit. Like, you went out and talked to a lot of these people. Um just talk a little bit about like what that was like and where you met people and you know what kinds of things they were telling you. Yeah. Okay. Well, I generally I've spent a lot of time in assisted living facilities, okay. and um, I've I've eaten a lot of uh, tuna fish salad and <laughs> butternut squash soup. Um, okay. But I've had just incredible. Uh, interviews talking to these women were born in 1920, mm-hmm. you know, the year that women got the vote. They lived right. through the Great Depression. Uh, they experienced that aspect of American life. They were so spirited and so plucky, like even in their mid-90s. Mm. Uh, there was one woman here in Washington who was living in an assisted living facility, but she liked to meet me at the Cosmos Club downtown over Bloody Mary's. <laughs> and she would take public transportation to get to the Cosmos Club. Mm. And one day when this when the subway broke, 
broke down. She just got out of the subway in a neighborhood she didn't know, and she just waited for the bus so she could get downtown and we could talk and have Bloody Marys. Uh, and and there was another woman who, um, in an assisted living facility in Atlanta, she had broken her wrist the night before our interview, and I took her to the emergency room the next day, and we conducted our interview in the emergency room. Wow. Uh, and um, she said to me during the interview, you know, I just hope that I live long enough to see the book published, mm. because the women really wanted to finally get credit for the role that they had played in the war. And, and fortunately, she did live long enough to mm-hmm. see the, the book published. And some of the women have gone on little book tours. They've been really... Um, honored in their hometowns where they live and have given talks and and asked to sign books. And it's been very meaningful to see them get the recognition and credit that they should have had all along. Liza Mundy is the author of Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers of World War II. She is a former reporter for The Washington Post and a senior fellow at New America. Liza, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. It's a pleasure. On our website, Liza Mundy takes a few minutes to tell us the story of her central character, Dot, who, when she got a chance to break codes, could not have been more thrilled. She was making $900 a year teaching school, overworked, underpaid. She had a boyfriend who had shipped out to battle and had sent her a diamond ring. Uh, She didn't really want to be engaged to him, but American women were told uh, that you can't upset the morale of the troops. That's at innovationhub.org. And an interesting historical side note here. There was a woman who wanted to work as a codebreaker, but she did not get that assignment. Instead, she was told to work on something pretty new. It was a computer called the Mark I. Her name was Grace Hopper, and she eventually became one of the most important people in programming history. We recently talked to her biographer, and you can find a link to that conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. 